0: Prophet Amos, chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And this word from 2 Timothy chapter 4, the first five verses, Paul writing to young Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming... When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is God's holy word. I begin, as I occasionally do, asking you to indulge your imagination. Some people have no imagination, and that's hard. But I'm especially asking you to imagine something difficult and probably not very well in conformity to any reality you would ever encounter. But just suppose you were born in Switzerland, and you grew up in a house in the Swiss Alps, You lived in that house until you were 10 years old. And now here it gets hard. Suppose you never left that house. Your family homeschooled you so that you never had to go outside. And uh, even more so, your house had no windows. Pretty hard to believe, right? Well, if it could possibly be true, just understand, as a child, you would have heard about the Swiss Alps. You might have seen books containing pictures of the beauty and grandeur of the Swiss Alps, one of the most amazing scenes. My wife and I always fantasized uh, we were way too young to afford any kind of exotic honeymoon, but Switzerland would have been where we would have gone, and we still have to get there. But you, in your house with no windows, never saw the Swiss Alps. Your eyes never once glimpsed them. Then one day, your parents said, you know… This is kind of tiresome, living in this house with no windows. Let's get a carpenter. And in he came with a saw and made some openings and put in some windows. And for the first time at age 10, you look out these windows to your total astonishment to see the breathtaking beauty of the Swiss Alps just miles away. Those splendid mountains were, were there. They'd been there all the time. But they'd been invisible to you, and now you could not stop marveling at the grand reality suddenly visible to you so nearby through those windows. Well, I know the situation I posed seems absurd and probably would never happen, but as we examine the Bible and its authority and its many benefits to the people of God in these coming weeks, Lord willing, I ask you to please consider that God's written word is equivalent to a great window. For the Bible doesn't come to us as a science textbook telling us about the geology of the Swiss Alps, nor a geography map book showing us the Alps on a map. It comes as a window through which we see truth and reality that we would not and could not see any other way. The Bible is a window to the supernatural truths of all reality, and in fact, even the natural world that we can see with our physical eyes appears quite different when seen with biblical truth in view. When God's Word in Scripture is opened up to the minds of those who are without it, it brings such a stunning revelation to people that many times they tell us they feel like they've always lived in a dark cave and suddenly they've come out into brilliant sunlight. For more than 20 years now, I have been privileged to preach to you on Sunday mornings. And you know, I think, that I have not come to you with entertaining stories or fables. I've not come to you as a a TV stand-up comic with jokes. I haven't come to you as a network news reporter bringing you the world news and analysis of it, nor have I come to you as an academic person telling you about the latest writings and books and journal articles in the field of religion or psychology or anything else. I have tried, at least according to my calling, to come to you as a man of one book. I've had the same book in my possession, every Sunday that I've ever come to you. Different Bibles actually, but the same thing between the covers. And I've come to you daring to say that one ancient book speaks of permanent and eternal value, lessons, and vital things to us in the 21st century. A book composed by 40 different human authors over a span of many centuries. Someone estimated there are two million words, if you're interested. And we've come with this one book, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, willing to say something that we believe should be said. From this book, we can say, Thus says the Lord God of hosts. God speaks. He doesn't speak in mystic dreams and visions and individual oracles or some kind of ecstatic experiences. He speaks in and through his word, a window to everything that is true reality. Now, we know that human beings took pens or quills or something and and put those words on papyrus. We're not ignorant about the processes of Bible formation. But we nevertheless believe that the unseen holy God speaks in His Word. As some have said, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. I propose to explore this with you and the why and wherefore of all this in weeks to come. We're going to ask things like, did the right books get in here? Are there, as some people would say to us, uh, books that should have been here that that uh, did not? There's a wonderful woman Uh, well, I don't know if I call her wonderful or not, but a a, uh, woman with a strong reputation in the academic world who goes around packing out lecture halls telling everybody Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't count. The Gospel of Thomas is the one you should listen to. Absolute nonsense. Absolute nonsense. The Gospel of Thomas was written centuries after the other Gospels and does not stand on a plane with them at all. And yet people build careers on things like this. What is inspiration? What does it mean? What is infallibility? What is inerrancy? We're going to try to answer some of these questions in weeks to come. And if I'm preaching to the choir, I hope you'll be a better informed choir after listening and thinking about some of these things. But today, just sketching on this Communion Sunday when I must be shorter, the main issue that I call the crisis of biblical authority First I point you to the prophet Amos who wrote about 750 to 760 BC. He was actually a farmer, a shepherd, not a professional priest or ecclesiastic, not even known previous to his speaking in this book as a as a prophet, but he was given the gift of prophecy to speak to the northern kingdom of Israel. This is when Uh, The people of God are divided into northern nation Israel, southern nation Judah, after Solomon's time. And uh, Amos was called like the voice of a lion because he was very bold. And he was here to tell Israel that they were too self-content and self-righteous. They thought they had it made. They were living in times of great prosperity. Money was flowing. Food was abundant. They were fairly safe at the moment from their enemies. They thought they had it made. And I'm sure they thought if anybody needed judgment, it would be their enemies. Instead, Amos stood up and said, God is going to judge you, negligent people who are willing to ignore even the word of God as it comes to you. And sure enough, 30 or 40 years later, the mighty Assyrians, the cruel Assyrians, came down, swept down, and took Israel captive and really decimated their nation. Chapter 8, verse 11 and 12 is only one part of all the things Amos had to say to them and about their shortcomings, but here you see he prophesied a famine for hearing the Word of God. Why? Because they were ignoring the Word of God as it had been made known to them. In writing, first of all, the books of Moses were in their possession. The law of God, the commandments was with them. All of, Many of the books of history already recorded. The Psalms of David were present, the writings of Solomon and Proverbs and other things. They had a large chunk of the Old Testament already, and prophets were active. Prophets like Amos and others were speaking in their time. But these are people so self-satisfied that they acted as if God wasn't speaking or had not spoken at all. They were unwilling to hear what he said. Well, you say, that sounds pretty fantastic. Well, we've got it in our day, don't we? Seems to me I heard about a Supreme Court recently that said, aha, we have no clear word from God indicating what marriage ought to be all about. So maybe marriage is for a man and a woman, but maybe not. Maybe it's for a man and a man or a woman and a woman. God hasn't apparently given us any direction on this subject. So let's make up a new law. Very same thing happening in our day as was happening in the days of Amos. Americans certainly have Bibles. No one can say we don't have the Word of God. Certainly thousands and even millions of homes have Bibles with a thick coat of dust on them that are never opened. Christian broadcasting is still in pretty good business, sending out radio messages and all other kinds of media today where people can access good preaching and some bad preaching too, but certainly they can hear the message of the gospel, the word of God. There's no problem with the message being out there. The problem is people having no time to listen to God's revealed word, and this is a tragedy. When Scripture is ignored, the Scripture itself tells us a nation will have no divine moral base to regulate human behavior and check human lusts and impulses and wrong thinking. The society will not have a call to repentance anywhere else. If it heeds promises from heaven, it will get encouragement and hope from those. But if it ignores God's word, it will have no promises from heaven or no hope. And the tragic result is what we read happening in the book of Judges of Scripture, that it ends up everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. Society plunges into moral and political and societal chaos, and godless politicians seek only their own power and prestige, and what have you got? You've got a mess. And both Israel and Judah ignored the word of God in such a way that God allowed a fitting result for them. He allowed 400 silent years to follow in which both nations, having been taken into captivity and not really existing as God's organized nation any longer, heard nothing new from God for four centuries. That's that whole space between Old Testament and new in your Bible until John the Baptist came to bring the voice of a prophet again to say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's Old Testament hunger spoken of here when God's Word is ignored, and it's still happening today. But then there's also New Testament disaster spoken of in 2 Timothy 4 when God's Word is not ignored but actually refused. These are similar passages, Old Testament and New, except it would seem in 2 Timothy 4 as if Paul is warning about the the idea of People knowingly hearing the word and actually saying, I don't want it. I want something else. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, Paul said, but having itching ears. I always love that metaphor. They will accumulate teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. One of the scholars now he's now dead, but he was viewed as a great guru of modern culture. Bill Moyers did programs about him on TV, it was a man named Joseph Campbell. And Joseph Campbell was basically an expert on the mythology of mankind throughout all kinds of cultures and civilizations. And his idea was, well every culture has their own mythology, their own stories, their own tales that they tell that somehow let them shape meaning and understanding. And, of course, for a man like that, this is just our mythology, just like many other mythologies. Well, folks, I don't think any of us would debate too seriously the idea or the understanding that what Paul predicted to Timothy is certainly upon us in modern-day society. Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, is by all measurements one of the most conservative religious Protestant areas in all of America, certainly at least in the northeastern states of America. There'd be other places in the Bible Belt down south. But if you want this part of the world where there are supposedly a lot of churches with a conservative heritage, with Reformation roots, you would think, and and we are known for this, you know, people talk about Lancaster and they say, oh yeah, those folks, they still you know, they kind of are pretty religious over there and they're courteous and they're nice and and they have integrity and they have a great work ethic. And it would sound like, wow, you know, Protestant views of the Bible are flourishing in Lancaster County. Well, I just ask those of you because you say it to me. I, I tell you, I don't have an experience to go out and church hunt, obviously. You know, I get into another church a few times a year on vacation. But some of you have been church hunters in recent years. And you tell me what your experiences are. If you've been a church hunter of any stripe or flavor in recent years in Lancaster County, did you find it easy to find a place of worship where the Word of God wasn't just opened and formally read while the man then went and spoke about something else completely, but rather took the Word of God and expounded it, drew out of it what it had to say? from the Spirit of God, did you find it easy to find such a place? Most of you tell me you had a real hard time. I have to believe you. I ask, why is it that about half of the Christian liberal arts colleges, I'm not talking about Bible colleges, but four-year liberal arts colleges in our state alone, a fairly conservative state, have in their Bible departments, I can document this very easily and others will document it, professors who will tell the freshman Bible class, put away all that silly Sunday school baggage that you bring here to our four-year liberal arts Christian college, once called Christian, because I'm going to tell you why the Bible doesn't say what you think it says. You will find that, and I will name names if you want me to name names. I will not name them right now. This is a real tragedy evangelical institutions today barely qualify for that title anymore if that title means dependence on the Word of God as the Word of God. So let me ask thirdly this morning, what caused our current day crisis of biblical authority? And I'm going to give you a very brief historical sketch, and I'm going to be about as blunt as I'm able to be in just a short time. The Reformation of the 16th century represented certainly the high watermark for Western Christianity having what we call a high view of the Bible, a view that this is God's, God's book given to us. It is inspired altogether. It is infallible that God worked through the mysterious process of inspiration to give men his thoughts and his truths. And the Reformation... Was just as much about recovering that view of the Bible as it was about justification by grace through faith. We talk about the solas of the Reformation. Sola scriptura, scripture alone, as our authority, along with sola fide, salvation by grace through faith alone. You would have easily access, if you don't have it anywhere else, in the back of your hymn book, the Westminster Confession of Faith. You can look at it if you wish to right now. Page 847 of your hymnal will show you two pages. It's actually on three three pages, but it's part of one. So it fills about two pages of detailed, carefully subscribed and written beliefs that the Reformation had about the Word of God. And if you checked out that creed there, you would see that this is the first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith for very good reason. How do we talk about any other subject, Christ, God, the Holy Spirit, salvation, heaven, hell, anything else, unless we've got a source to tell us what God says about it? So the first chapter of most Reformation creeds were about the Word of God, and you see that high view of it originating with God and being his very word coming through there in the Westminster Confession. I'll be quoting from and referring to some of that material in days to come, Lord willing. This view, this high view of Scripture and authority really held through most Protestant churches of the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries, at least until the late 19th century. If you had gone to, let's say, a New England congregational church in the days of Pickett, 1750, before the Revolution, and, and you examine the elders and the minister of that or any other nearby church, do you believe the Bible is the very Word of God? Why, somebody would be insulted that you even asked that question. Of course they believe that. Go and ask a Baptist congregation in the early 1800s or an Anglican congregation, in, say, in the 1840s or so. Do you believe the Bible is the very word? Of course we do. That wasn't a matter of contest. But then something brewed in the late 19th century. Really, it was coming before that, but it really came into fruition and visibility in the late 19th century, as in European universities, particularly in Germany, scholars, people with PhDs, and big brains. A big brain doesn't always equal wisdom, you know came and said, well, look, we've been thinking about the Bible and we don't really think that many of the things that are written in the Gospels ascribed to Jesus as his sayings really are his sayings. We don't think that most of these things reported to be miracles really could have been miracles. We don't think that most of the epistles ascribed to Paul were written by Paul. And many other types of things like that, they started to say, You would think they had a lot of good backing and reasoning to support all this. Go and check it out if you want. I can refer you to books. They really didn't have that much to back up anything except they were able to speak persuasively and sound convincing. And their thinking fermented in Europe and jumped the ocean by the turn of the 20th century so that amazingly within a few decades, by the early decades of the 20th century, nearly every seminary serving what we would call a mainline, i.e. Lutheran, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, Congregational, and so on, uh, church or denomination in the United States, nearly every seminary was in some way captive to this thinking. It's as if an enormous cloud of termites flew over the Atlantic Ocean and flew into the woodwork of every mainline Protestant denomination in Europe and America. You may know that we fought a battle called the fundamentalist-modernist controversy in the 1920s. Many denominations were involved, the Presbyterians very much so. Presbyterianism went from being a denomination which in the mid-19th century was a staunch bastion and castle for respect for the Word of God, To a denomination where the majority of ministers and laymen said boy a lot of that stuff doesn't count anymore let's loosen up the reins a little bit more than a little bit in fact conservatives who defended the reformation view of scripture were beaten back on every front they lost control of every seminary and started independent institutions as you may know left and right and now some of them boy what goes around comes around some of those institutions, independent churches and seminaries, now went through the same battle again a few decades later. I have served, had a privilege to serve on the trustee board of one of America's most respected evangelical seminaries that emerged 80 years ago out of the fundamentalist modernist controversy because an institution was needed that would be unapologetic about a high view of the Word of God. Guess what? Between five and ten years ago, the decade of the 2000s, I spent with other godly men agonizing, agonizing times. Well, I'll call it what it was, purging the faculty of that institution so that it once again represented biblical integrity, which it does today, I'm happy to be able to say. But it was a difficult thing because men who were hired to say, yes, I believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, said, well, now let me explain what that means. doesn't mean exactly what you think it means. And off we went. Folks, this is a crisis in our day. And it comes down to us as pastor, as people, understanding that there's an all-or-nothing position we have to take. I am very happy to reaffirm to you It constitutes no change, certainly, in anything I've ever said, but I'll say it to you again, and I know that my fellow pastors will say this and our elders will say this. What Scripture says, God says. There we stand. We will brook no compromise with the Reformation view of the inspiration and authority of the Bible because it was the position of the apostles and it was the position of Jesus Christ himself. I know I'm a little over time. I'm going to ask you to just forgive me here. I want to tell you one little illustration that that moved me very much when I was a young man. Every single Christian, I think, needs to make the decision that Billy Graham faced early in his public ministry. I read a biography of his when I was probably about 20. I think I might have been in college thinking about my own calling to ministry, and This incident in the life of Billy Graham moved me in a very important way. I wouldn't agree with every note of theology with Billy, but he's a great man of God. Billy graduated from Wheaton College. He didn't go to seminary. You may know that. He's always said he regretted not getting more education. But a lot of his friends from college did go to seminary, and he kept in touch with them. And well, they started writing and talking to Billy about all the critical slop that they were hearing about the authority of the Bible and why it should be doubted. And Billy's mind got turned around by this stuff. Here was a young popular evangelist. People were responding to Christ at his rallies. And he, in his mind, thought, well, maybe I'm a fool to hold on to this conservative position on the Bible. These professors my friends are studying with must know more than I do. And he was really turned around over this. He tells of a night when he was in San Bernardino, California at a retreat, I guess it was, at a retreat center. And one evening he went out by himself and he was in a lot of turmoil and he was praying in the woods near this retreat center. And I'm paraphrasing his prayer, but I know I have the substance of it right. He knelt down and he, he felt he was at a crisis point and he said, Father, I'm just one young preacher. I'm not the smartest of them I haven't studied. I don't have a doctorate. I can't answer all these critics' issues and questions, but I'm drawing a line in the sand. Here, Father, I determined to preach this book as though every sentence in it is from your mouth. And I will do that, and I will trust you for the results. Thank you, Billy, because he helped me see that that had to be done, and I made such a commitment myself a long time ago. I've never regretted it. You too must choose in this matter. Let me confront you with just one thing as I close. You think, of course, that the fundamental decision or commitment you must make to be part of Christianity, to be born again of the Spirit of God, is to Embrace Christ in faith as your Savior. Of course, that is extremely important, and I would never take away from that as a significant event in your life to become a Christian, to put your trust in Christ. But stop and think a second. How do you even know about Christ or know what you should do about him or with him unless you believe the Bible's message about him in the first place? So really, prior to any decision about Christ comes a decision about his word. Has God spoken? Has he spoken reliably? Has he spoken the truth? And is that window of divine truth such that it shows you a whole different world than you've ever seen before? You see, that's what Martin Luther was saying. 499 years ago, in October, Martin Luther stood before men who had the power to kill him. And he said, My conscience is held captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. If you and I do not plant our feet on Luther's same foundation in the authoritative written Word of God, I ask you, what other platform will we possibly stand upon in these times when the earth itself rocks beneath our feet? Father, I pray that you help us be people who don't just nominally say, yes, I believe the Bible, but that we would believe it with conviction, that we would believe it because your Holy Spirit who spoke in it inhabits us and speaks to us, that we would believe it because we're looking through the windows that allow us to see the world, the present, the past, and the future as you see it. Thank you for your word. Help us, Father, to embrace it more and more with the strength of life-transforming faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.